G'day, Sasha here. Thank you so much for listening. Fleur Brown's on the show today. She's great. What an incredibly successful woman she is. And she survived being in a cult. My goodness, I can't wait for you to hear this. Um, Before we get to that chat, this show is not made just by me. It's made by two extra people, at least Andy Ma, my audio producer, and Rachel Barrett, my show producer. I have to pay these people. I'd do it for free, but I have to pay people for their time. So I need to play ads on this show now. If you're lucky or unlucky, whatever, you're about to hear a little noise and then you're either going to hear an ad and then you'll hear Fleur say something profound or you'll just hear Fleur say something profound. Are you ready? Here we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I pretty much decided that I wanted to come out of this group, but I wasn't sure how to do it. And the weird thread, like I always see it as a, you pull a thread on the jumper and the whole thing kind of comes loose and everyone's threads different. So in the Combating Cult Mind Control book, Stephen Hassan talks about people break a leg and they go to hospital and suddenly they're out of the bubble and they get this kind of healthy input and an intervention can take place. But something has to happen to kind of change. For me, it was makeup because we were told you can't wear makeup. That was really intolerable to me. I was, I grew up being told makeup is ungodly and you will perish if you wear makeup. And then they changed the rule and said, you can wear makeup. And so this was kind of ticking over in my brain. I'm thinking, wait a second. One moment you're saying that we will go into the lake of fire. And the other moment you're saying, oh, we'll just randomly change that rule back again. So I thought, what else is in that category? That is speaker, author, entrepreneur, and cult survivor, Fleur Brown. And this is episode 325 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. My guest today on episode 325 of the show is Fleur Brown. She's an extraordinarily successful woman and she also happens to have survived a cult. She's written a book 
a book on personal branding called The Business of Being You. There's a link to it in the show notes. And uh, But I'll tell you more about Fleur in a moment. If you're new, uh, what is the show? This show is simply a podcast to hopefully help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Something you hear today will make you go, aha, uh-huh. maybe just try something a little different and then boom, tonight when you go to bed, you go, you know what? Today was pretty good compared to the day before. I'd say it was better than yesterday. That's really about it. If uh, you don't know who I am, my name is Osher Ginsberg. I'm a, a, a TV guy and a podcast guy and a book writing guy from uh, Sydney, Australia. I rode a borrowed motorbike a very, very long way today, but I want to talk to my, more about that on Friday because I, I did a ride to support the RFS uh, to an area just kind of north of Sydney there that was devastated by the recent bushfires and uh, it, it's probably a, a whole other chat. So I might talk to you about that on Friday because it was uh, amazing and horrible and incredible and terrifying all at once. But I can't talk to you today and not talk about what happened in Brisbane to Hannah Clark and her three children. I'll let you Google that. And um, if you don't know what it is and if this is 10 years from now or five years from now and you don't know what's going on, it'll still be online. You can find out. But it was uh, absolutely an incredibly horrible, horrible, horrible murder. And it happened in broad daylight on a city street in Camp Hill of Brisbane. Like one of the most sleepy suburbs in a Brisbane, I love you, sleepy town. And I just can't fucking bear it. I cannot bear that it that it happened the way it happened. She was murdered and her children were murdered by her ex. Horribly. He poured petrol on them and set them on fire. Now, if that man was a terrorist, they would close every airport. They would kick in the door of every church, synagogue or mosque, wherever the man went. And they would haul every single person that he'd crossed paths with in for questioning to find out how the hell he became that right under their noses. We'd know the pattern. That is exactly what would damn happen. And I'm sick, like you, I'm sick to my stomach of constantly being told there's so much danger coming at us in Australia from people who've come from other countries or other cultures when one woman a week is murdered in Australia, one woman a week. Right, if that was terrorism figures, the army would be on the streets. In 2019, 61 women in Australia were violently murdered. It's February the 23rd when I'm recording this, so the 24th when you hear this, and uh, so far eight women have been murdered. That's less than seven weeks into the year, not even. That's one woman a week on average in Australia that's murdered, and it's mostly in her home, and it's usually by somebody that she knows. But it's not just that. One in three women in Australia have experienced physical violence since the age of 15, and one in five Australian women has experienced sexual violence. This is obviously utterly unacceptable. I believe it was Annabelle Crabb who said on Will Anderson's podcast, Philosophy, if that were shark attacks, they would drain the ocean. Nobody wants this as a life for their wife, their girlfriend, their mother, their sister, their friend, their cousin, their aunt, their daughter. So what's a pathway out of this incredibly awful place? Well, number one, understanding that all of us have a part to play in the deep-seated gender inequality that leads to dehumanising someone to the point uh, where this kind of behaviour comes up as an idea that can be followed through with. 
It starts with calling out sexist or derogatory behaviour where you see it, social situations, group chats, wherever. Because humans make decisions about behaviour in a social context. If people see that their behaviour is, is kind of being in the minority, they will change to fit in. That's just how we do it. It's also important that we model behaviour for our sons and daughters, behaviour that shows respect, equality and division of labour between the parents, behaviour that shows equal expectations of life and equal expectations of outcomes for both parents in a, any relationship or in a heterosexual relationship. You can't be what you can't see. And the behaviour in the program starts being written when you're so very, very young. My sister-in-law, who's um, quite active in this space, she sent me um, something, and I've seen it before, but it bears repeating here. Being a woman is kind of like being a cyclist in a city where all the cars represent men. You're supposed to be able to share the road equally with cars, but that's not how it works. The roads are built for cars, and you spend a great deal of physical and mental energy being defensive and trying not to get hurt. Some of the cars want you to get hurt. They think you don't have any place on the road at all. And if you do get hurt by a car, everyone makes excuses that it's your fault. It's absolutely horrid. And if it's brought up some awful memories for you, I, I'm, I'm sorry for that. Um, this is not okay for anybody. This is not a country you or I want to live in. This is not a country that you or I want for the women in our lives. No. This can't happen. Talk who you need to talk to. Talk to who you need to talk to. Send who you need to send a message. Just get it to them. If the people that you vote for don't have a good policy on women's shelters and don't have a good policy on gender equality, then vote for someone else. It's really that. That's it. And then what can you control in your own home? You've got to call it out. You've got to model behaviour, not only for your family but also for people around you. And that's just it. That's where you can start. Sorry to kick off on something so heavy like that. Oh, sorry about that. Let me just slug some of this. Ah, oh, kombucha. Soft drink for old people. <laughs> oh, yeah. On to something lighter. I did want to say thank you so much to everybody that sent me an email, send osher email at gmail.com is where I am. Naomi sent a most beautiful, beautiful photograph from Weepa, um, where she's listening in beautiful far north Queensland. You mentioned in an episode uh, that there are some websites you use to offset carbon emissions. There are, I do. Green Fleet is uh, the one I use to offset carbon emissions. I'm actually in the middle of buying some right now for the motorbike ride I did today because uh, I rode a petrol bike today. It's not much, you know. Uh, it's um, it's actually quite negligible, and let's be honest, you know, attacks on carbon would not be. It'd suck because it'd increase things by a little bit, but it would do the job on driving prices elsewhere. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, Naomi, that's who I use because they're pretty. Uh, they're, it's pretty simple, and it's a beautiful picture. Thank you so much for showing that sunset to me. And another one from Michelle, who's on uh, the Nordic Track treadmill, listening to a podcast, trying to distract myself to walk for longer. Get among it, Michelle, make it happen. You can send me your emails, send us your email at gmail.com. It's always great to uh, great to see you there. People do want to get in touch with me on Instagram. That's great. I'm 
not really on Instagram. Haley, who works for me, kind of takes care of that. If you want to know why I'm not on Instagram, go back a couple episodes. It's an addiction thing, pretty much. <laughs> it's an abstinence model. I have to be away from it. <laughs> so email is the best way to get to me. So I'm really excited about getting my guest on today. She's extraordinary. Author, speaker, and CEO Fleur Brown is my guest today. She's an incredibly successful woman who also happens to be a cult survivor. Fleur and I worked with each other a bit last year, and once we got kind of talking, I just had to ask her, like, is it okay if you come on the podcast and share this story? You know, we started talking about that she had grown up in a cult and that she managed to get herself out. And I thought it would be – I've spoken about cults on this show before, and I thought it would be really interesting for you to listen to that about how someone might find themselves in that situation – what it's like to be in there, some misconceptions about people that you may think have, you know, going on, and then how people get out. That's my dog. God, Frankie. Really? Really? What is it? It's the possums, is it? My dog loves to bark at possums. Possums don't care, Frank. They speak possum. They don't speak dog. Anyway. And I want Flo to come on the show because cults, mind control, and manipulation whether the uh, victim knows it or not, are very, very real things. And they prey on people more often than you think they would. And they kind of tend to use the same techniques. So hearing Fleur speak about it, it might even give you a clue about something that's happened in your life or someone you know. Certainly make you look at things twice. Made me look at things twice. I hope that in hearing from Fleur's story, you do indeed, you know, get a chance to listen to someone who's been in the middle of a cult and how easily you can find yourself in that situation and indeed how somebody like Fleur managed to get out. What's epic about her story is her incredibly successful career since she escaped. She's since gone on to help build the public profiles of some of the world's most innovative media, technology and entertainment brands, thought leaders and entrepreneurs. It's kind of interesting because for someone who had her very identity stripped away from her, Fleur has used that to then figure out what makes an identity really powerful as she was building her own identity back. She kind of found her way into this work and she comes at it with an extraordinary knowledge of how these things work and she's very, very good at it. She's really passionate about helping individuals uh, establish and even grow their personal profile. And we talk a little bit about that, about how your own brand, your personal brand is going to be so important in the workforce that's coming. And we'll go kind of go into that. She has some really good advice, actually, for the next 10 years or so of, of the workplace. Fleur's a very successful woman. She's the co-founder and CEO of the award-winning PR agency, The Launch Group. She's the founder and executive producer of the, the TV show, Entrepreneurs TV, which is on Sky Business News. And she's the co-founder of TEDx in Sydney which is, as you know, one of the world's largest innovation festivals. Her book is called The Business of Being You. There's a link to it in the show notes. You can find her on Twitter, Fleur Brown, F-L-E-U-R-B-R-O-W-N. And I'm so very, very happy to bring you this conversation with Fleur Brown. How are you, Fleur? I am well, yes, considering all the anxiety that's out there. (laughs) Uh, Yeah? Which particular anxiety today? Well, I think like everyone, you know, bushfire tipping into climate change concerns. 
Yeah. So I did something about that recently, turn it into some action, which I'm pleased about. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wearing my Mahalo ScoMo shirt today. It's horrifying. It's a bright orange, yellow, and it's the colours of the summer bushfire. The artwork's actually remarkably subtle. It is, and it's basically ScoMo's face as the stamen of a hibiscus. (laughs) <laughs> on his Hawaiian holiday while... I'll never look into the face of a hibiscus with the same as, a, as Australia burns <laughs> and people die and lose their homes and he's on the beach in Waikiki. That shirt may be the only good thing that came out of that. <laughs> I don't know. I feel that, you know, there's a scientist mate of mine who said, I think this is the summer that just might do it. You know, because we're not even halfway done. That's the thing. We are not even halfway done. Do it in a good sense? As a, yeah, do yeah, it as tipping in, point for as in Australia goes, no, no, mm. this isn't the future. We, want, we don't want to live in this future without people who believe it, mm. care about it, and are taking vigorous action to protect mm. us from it. And the change sort of needs to happen while we're in the midst of it, I think. Well, yes, this is the, this is the interesting thing. Mm. I was trying to come up with a metaphor about it. There was a an American rock climber by the name of Aaron Ralston who in 2003 had a terrible accident where on a solo climb he got his arm pinned by a boulder, his right arm against a wall and he was out in the middle of Utah completely by himself and he tried to get it off. He tried for five days to winch it off, hack it off, the rock that is, push it off, couldn't do it. On the fifth day he saw his hand start to decompose and he went, I'm going to die. Got out his pocket knife chopped his own arm off, walked 20 kilometres out of the desert, now has a cool robot arm, goes around the world inspiring millions of people, and James Franco played him in a movie. That's a troubling analogy. That's us. <laughs> I get it. That's us right now. We are in the middle of space, trapped by fossil fuels, and we are our hand is starting to decompose, and now is our choice. Yeah. Because if we don't make that move, we're going to die here. Yeah, look, I'm with you. I mean, I grew up in a childhood that was dogged by prophecy and the world is ending, you know, kind of um, conversation. So it's familiar territory for me, except there weren't scientists involved at that point. We're dealing with non-experts. Yeah. I would, if you're okay to talk about that, Yeah, I would like to dig into that quite a bit. By way of introduction, we know each other through You Help Me quite a bit work on um, some speaking stuff, uh, which I was uh, very grateful for. You also founded TEDx here in Sydney. And you are a cult survivor. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thank you for putting it in that order. <laughs> well, um, and, you know, I've spoken about cults on this show before through the lens of climate change denial and anti-vax, mm. all right, because there's very, very similar mm. manipulation techniques that go mm. on to get people to believe things that simply are not true. Mm. And the line is cults equals religion plus time. Christianity was a cult. Mm. Jesus was a Jewish guy who was like, you know what, there was probably something. Mm. And then enough people followed him and then after a while I was like, well, this is a religion. Yeah, there's an amazing book called Zealot, which I'm sure you'd enjoy. Joe Thornley. You've read, you've read it's it. It's extraordinary. Okay, yes. She's been on the show. <laughs> oh, right. Okay, yeah, yeah. I'm going to backtrack through that one. She's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's great. We had a long conversation about it. Yeah, yeah. She's really, really, really good. And dives right into it, but it, it's fascinating. But I've, I've never spoken to uh, on this show, I've never spoken to someone who's lived through it. I've worked with people who are cult survivors, mm. but I've never spoken to someone about it. 
I'm guessing you didn't have a choice about it. No. You were born into it? Not born into it, but I would have been two when my no mother choice. went in and then, yeah, grew up in that environment completely. I was 20 when I came out, which is quite, you know, old. And when I look back, I think, wow, how did I get to 20 without yeah. actually exiting? And a lot of people... I know left in a fit of rebellion, you know, in their teenage period, which didn't seem like an option for me. They they tended to yeah. be more male, like my brother, and then some of them go back into really disciplined, intense, you know, religious environments later in life because they didn't actually exit properly. Uh. They didn't undo the damage and look at why that, you know, that system of thinking was affecting them. And so they go back into something that's reasonably similar, which fortunately I I didn't do. The echoes of people who have an abusive mother or father that Mm. then get into a relationship with an abusive person are too large to ignore them. Yeah, Like especially if they got you young, the patterns of behaviour that are written into you in the formative years of your life just coming to repeat themselves as an adult. It's terrifying. Absolutely. And I mean, it really, you know, I exited quite well, but it was many years later. In fact, you know, only last year I went into any formal kind of therapy, which I love. And it was really later in life that I recognized the the impacts and, you know, how that had been affecting my progress as a human. And I think parenting is really confronting in that sense. Like you look at what you're projecting onto a child and then you rethink your own childhood and you recognise that you would never have, you know, consciously implemented some of the things that were done when you were in your own childhood, you know, with your innocent young person who's a blank slate. So I'm, I'm a bit older than you, but I'm guessing this is late 70s, early 80s when you were... No, it was... Um, I don't do age conversations, but it was... Um, <laughs> It was early early 70s when my mum went into that Uh environment, yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot going on at that time, lots of protest and, you know, redefinition of identity going on in society for her. Which country were you in at the time? New Zealand. So Uh the interesting thing about this group is it was absolutely a global group started by an American evangelical preacher who was an ad man who turned to religion when he lost his copywriting job and then created a multi-billion dollar empire, global empire, which, you know, found its reach into countries like New Zealand. It was, you know, right through other territories and regions. There were hundreds of thousands of members around the world. And I felt like I grew up in an American society because the culture that I grew up in in New Zealand in that, in that group was very American. He was one of the first radio evangelists, so he sort of used his um, advertising and media skills to create a bit of a media empire, and that's how he spread his message. Multi-billion dollars, so I'm guessing that wasn't it like a 30% tithing or something, which is pretty fair work. So to unpack that a little bit, if you follow the Bible teachings on tithing, it's, you know, there's a 10% plus 10% plus 10%. So 10% is what goes to the church. 10% is kept aside or our teaching of it was for festivals. So we would put 10% in the bank account and then it's used during the religious celebrations. And then every third year you have a a third year tithe, which goes to the church to help the, you know, the poor and needy, which most of us were poor and needy, but we're sort of putting 30% of our gross income into this religion. And the stress that my father was under financially was, you know, crazy. What were they getting out of it? Why did they join? Well, my mother, I think traumatic events in your life are often 
a catalyst for this kind of thing. And my mother had just had her father die and, you know, she was just in her mid-20s at the time and that was a big trauma for her and I think she was looking for answers. And then if you couple that with what was going on in society where there's a lot of pressure on women to look at how they're living their life and their identity challenges and she just kind of chose a more conservative path, went with a group that created a a feeling of community and then my father says he followed her in effectively. It was quite a nice environment for men, very patriarchal, lots of leadership opportunities for men and a little more unpleasant, I think, for women at that time. Sounds like Gilead. (laughs) 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 Do you watch stuff like Handmaid's Tale and go, yep, know that? Uh, A lot of people thrust cult books and movies and things like that at me and I have absolutely zero interest. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really want to relive that. Fair enough. Yeah, I I love analysing the impact Mm. and the thing that really pulled me out of this group was a book by a man called Stephen Hassan called Combating Cult Mind Control and I can remember the moment that I pulled that from the bookshelf in Ariel Bookstore in Paddington and went, oh, that looks interesting. I don't need to read that. Just get the travel book. And then I sort of something inside me said, no, just get that book. And I'm thinking, what? that's a scary read. Why would you read that? So I had absolutely, you know, little consciousness of the group that I was in actually being a cult. I went home that night, read it from start to finish. 3 a.m. I finished and I knew categorically that I had been in a cult and I knew how to exit. It's a brilliant tool. So, but when you were a kid, obviously you're going to, I mean, were you allowed to go to a normal school or was it the kind of thing I went to a normal school. So we were in the world, but not of the world. And what that means is, and I connected, I hooked up with an old friend of mine when I went back to New Zealand this break. And I was sort of trying to explain to her what was going on at the time. Because I never had play dates, for example. We didn't celebrate birthdays or Christmas or any of the other celebrations. And so it was fundamentally embarrassing for me to hang out socially with people at school because I had so many impediments and mortifying humiliations. Like, you know, I thought, what if someone buys me a birthday present? I can't accept it. I can't give them one. So I went to a normal school and I felt at the time that I was having a normal experience. But when I look back, I was hanging out with very, very fringe people who were probably also feeling like misfits, deliberately not making friends. I had a very strong church community, so that was a nice offset to that. But I think back on that time and I think, wow, that really kind of laid out a a blueprint for me socially, which I still live inside. You know, I know everyone has shades of imposter syndrome, but I have, you know, I don't like going to parties particularly. I find it hard to just connect. And people, when I first started my business, some of my staff would say, oh, you're really secretive. And I think, well, I don't think I'm secretive. And then I realized I have this pattern of behavior where I'm just constantly protecting information. And mm. I've changed that a lot over the last 10 years, but it's just ingrained. It's a self-protection mechanism so that people wouldn't find out things about me that were embarrassing. But at the same time, I felt special and elite and we were the ones that were going to save the world. Yeah. So what was their message? Because like an anti-vax message is, you know, big farmers coming to get you and you know the secret 
because you're not using this and your kids aren't going to get this horrible yeah. illness. The climate change thing is you know that this is all just a socialist Jewish plot to take over the world or whatever the hell the people say it is. What was their message? Yeah, well, we drew heavily on the book of Revelation, which is pretty ghastly if you ever read it. And sorry for any Catholics out there, but the... Yeah, I'm sorry for you too. <laughs> the I used great to be war one. that rode the beast that's in Revelation was the Catholic Church. So we're always on the lookout for what the Catholic Church was up to. And then there were the 12, I think it was 12 heads of the beast were European countries who were collaborating with the Catholic Church. And there was all this prophetic stuff laid out. So we were always thinking we were probably about three years away from the end of the world. And that would bring in, you know, a range of possibilities from war would probably be the the first point, tipping point. And then there'd be, you know, famine that would follow that. Yes, famine, because that's a biblical word that Mm. would follow that, you know, that war period. pestilence. Pestilence. (laughs) That's a goodie. (laughs) Thank you. I forgot about that. And then we would be whisked away to the Middle East to a very specific place called Petra, which I never did manage to visit, but a lot of people from my church group yeah. would Petra, go and it's lovely. Yeah, 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 they'd go and visit. And we were going to live amongst the rocks and the hills there somehow, immune from all of this other stuff that was happening for three and a half years. So this terrible time would last three and a half years. It was very specific. And then we would still be alive and then Jesus Christ would return and recognise us as the special people, then we would teach the world how to live. Right. And so let's unpack that a little. When you're constantly telling people, three years away, all this is ending, but don't worry, I've got it sorted. Yeah. So in one breath, you're terrifying them and then going, and I'm the only way out. Yes. And that's such a pattern of behaviour that we see now, I mean, it's every politician does it, you know? Yes, and so I'm going to give you a really specific example of how that landed back in my world recently. So I rarely post on Facebook these days because I still have a few crazies on my, I sort of hang on to some of these people that are part of this group still because in in America in particular, uh, because I went to an international college over there and um, made a lot of friends, Americans are naturally more, religious and a lot of them have stayed in, you know, mm. kind of a form of this sort of group. So I posted something about climate change and, and this this man pops up who I haven't heard from for, you know, 10 years maybe and he says, oh, look, you know, this has been happening for thousands of years and it's all part of God's plan and I just really had to hold myself back from just saying you're absolutely right, let's do nothing, you know, because th- it's the sense of, everything's going to be okay and nothing you do really matters. And it's that fatalism. And I fought that sense of fatalism for many, many years. It's horrific. But at the same time, I felt kind of special and kind of chilled through, you know, my childhood because you were told it's all part of God's plan. So at the same time, you're getting this awful anxiety. You're also getting this kind of, but you're elite and you are going to just fall into this plan. Yeah. You don't need to worry about too much. The appeal to purity, which is that's a, a massive part of any kind of indoctrination, isn't it? And I know I'll keep going back to it, but just something that people can, you know, relate to is the, the anti-vax thing is, oh, no, this is nature's way, you know. <laughs> we survived for millions of years without this stuff. We don't need this. Well, mm. I, didn't have, I didn't have vaccinations, yeah. Wow. Mm. Have you had them since? Yes. Wow. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the land of not dying from some horrific Dickensian lung palsy, you know. It's, it's Absolutely. Well, when, I, when I went to South America, I had to have the polio vaccination. Yeah. 
I was convinced. And they said they didn't get to me in time because you have to have a series of them. And I was convinced that I was going to fatalistically come down with polio. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> glad you're okay. Uh, but yeah, that, that appeal to purity, that appeal to, oh no, but you're a part of us. You're special because you're with us. Everyone else is not special. Was that weird? Did you ever like at school when the teacher was getting mad at you be like, yeah, laugh now, honey. Ben Street, by the time I'm in grade seven, you're going to be burning. I'm going to be safe. Did you ever have that kind of feeling? Not quite like that. It was more just an emotional disconnection. Like, don't bother forming an emotional relationship with people who aren't part of the church. So the isolation was right in there. Yeah. Built into it, baked in. Yeah. It's almost like thinking of those individuals as on a robotic level. Sort of like that sort of subhuman robots. You know, I wasn't intellectualizing it. Um, Really dehumanizing people. Dehumanizing people. And yeah. And I think. Obviously, that really troubles me now because I actually think this is the framework from which we operate a lot of times when atrocious things happen. You know, you've got something in your head telling you that this group of individuals is somehow not like you. You know, a boat smashing onto the rocks at Christmas Island while children die yeah. in the surf and people film them Chinese with their phones. Chinese people um, who are battling the coronavirus mm. um, are somehow not relatable. No, they're not a person who has a child that wants their child to do better than they did. They're not hungry. They don't want to go to bed at night with a full belly or have their kids be safe. They're just a person on a screen. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I mean, the other thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently, so my mum died quite suddenly just a few years ago and... I remember being in the room when she was given her diagnosis and, you know, as soon as we got alone without the doctor there, which she wasn't really advocating for, she was quite happy for the doctor to be in the room, which I found odd as well. She said, oh, it doesn't matter. And those words just haunt me because I think they really sum up the mentality that was sort of being ingrained, which is that nothing really matters, you know. There's a planner somewhere who's sort of, puppeteering your life and you don't have impact. And so I think for me, the greatest battle through life since then has been believing I have impact in a positive or a negative sense and helping other people to also believe that they have impact. Because without that belief, you just don't try. Talking about being in a primary school yard and as you do it, I visualise only the only thing I know, which is my primary school yard and the isolation that you had there and the othering of those around you. And also that shame inside you that you don't want anyone to give you a birthday present. You know, I don't want anyone to, no one can come out of my house. I can't, please don't ask me. I don't want to be anyone's friend. There's, a, there's that shame in there as well. What happens when hormones start to kick in? The Bible's pretty heavy about, you know, women and how dare you be sexual beings. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah, I kind of, I had a rebellious teenage period. And I think about that time, if I hadn't had a lot of fierce loyalty to my family, I might have just up and flown the coop in mm. some ways. The thing that kept me on the on the line was the promise of going to this religious university in America, which for me was an escape from New Zealand and getting international experience and being in this pool of the elite of the elite. Mm. This is where they trained the ministers and their wives and all of that. And it was in Pasadena, California, had its own opera house. You know, it was just spectacular. This is where the founder lived and hosted all of his events. So I wanted to desperately wanted to go to that. And so that's the thing that kind of brought me around and stopped me being mm. a despicable teenager. But I did during that period, yeah, I had I had fun to a limit, I suppose. And if I'd left mm-hmm. the religion, I just, I probably would have had a pretty normal 
teenage. Do teachers ever ask you anything? Do they ever identify anything? Uh, when I look back, I can see that there was some gentle kind of intervention. Like I had a particular teacher, Miss Paps, who was a really great influence on me in primary school and she just used to feed me all these books. And I remember my mother being quite horrified at what I was reading at the time. And I was a massive reader. Like it's one of my indulgences, I'd start till two in the morning and read. Like I'd read a book, almost a book a day. And she used to feed me these, you know, really uh, worldly books. And thank you, Miss Paps. <laughs> a little peek out of a porthole that no one else can see out of like, here's the world, it's out here. Just yeah. keep an eye out. Yeah. And look, the other thing is I really wanted to be a journalist and I was told you can't be a journalist because they work on Saturdays and we had a Saturday Sabbath, which is uh, another point of difference. Yeah. And I was very curious. And so I did, it was pre-Google. I think if Google had been around, I probably would have gotten on to a lot of things much yeah. faster. I actually find it hard to imagine that you could grow up in that kind of cult in this day and age yeah. with access to Google. Yeah. I had to go and look at microfiche records to find out that the cult leader had been sued by the state of California for you know various financial crimes, incest with his daughter, you know all sorts of lovely things. Oh, goodness. Yes, that one went away. Yeah. Of course it did. A lot of the church money <laughs> went to pay off lawsuits. I'll bet. Yeah. Settled out of court. Yeah. There was a 60 Minutes piece as well, no, none of which we were exposed to, of course. Yeah. What was the church called? Worldwide Church of God. Doesn't exist in that form, but it's splintered as they do. This is the other thing about cults is yeah. that they, they splinter. Yeah. the uh, Joe was talk, telling me about that. And I was talking to Audrey about it because I was letting her know that I was coming to see you. But, you know, that within the church group, there's those who go, this is too hardcore and there are those who go, this isn't hardcore enough. And then there's the pastor who's yes. like, I'm not quite getting as much. The up and coming pastor who does the, you know, the dark nights, who does the Monday show, <laughs> you know, uh, doesn't do the big headliner Sunday morning show. Um, goes, you know what? I'm not getting enough of this tithing bizzo. All right, how about you, 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 you? And then boom, there comes the faction like a beehive. They split and those who want it more hardcore go one way. Those who want it a little less hardcore go the other way. Then there's another split and then another split and another yeah. split within that. And then you end up with these extraordinarily tiny fringe yes. kind of groups of 30 people, 20 yeah. people on a farm somewhere. Yeah. Bible studies on in the bedroom on Saturday or whatever. Yeah. Absolutely. It amazes me though because some of the really rebellious boys that I grew up with have ended up really, really conservative and religious. And I'm sure there's an explanation for that. Well, I think, as you mentioned earlier, and this is why I'm wearing this shirt, as humans, I feel we want to know that someone's got it. We want to be absolved of the responsibility of making the big call. All right. And we just want to trust someone's got this. I can go about my day, feed my kids, go to work, whatever, just knowing someone's got this. They're building a detail plant. All right, someone's got this. They're putting a, a tax on carbon. Someone's got this. I don't have to concentrate on that. When you have leaders that are just in the wind on the beach in Waikiki, for example, while the country burns and there's not enough funding to fight a fire, there's no one, and people are like, well, someone needs to do something. And then when there's no one there, you can see the panic that and that ambiguity causes, you know. And there's so somewhere within us, I feel, as humans, we just need to know that someone's got it in control. I, I agree with that. And I think the problem with the systems that we have, so to me, corporate life has cult-like 
elements to it. Yeah. And, you know, obviously various forms of religion. So it creates this feeling of powerlessness mm. and a sense that people can't actually do anything that will truly have impact. You don't have any agency unless yeah. you stick with me. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And even if you do stick with me, you won't be the one that's driving the change. Yeah. So, you know, all those little inklings and instincts that you have just suppress them. You know, I think back to my parents who were not terrible people, but it blows my mind that their natural instincts, you know, around their own children were suppressed. And I think that's the worst form of it really, yeah. because it's, those are the most powerful instincts you yeah. potentially will have. Yeah. People just, I mean, and I see that. I see that in, you know, people around me as they get older, as they have kids and they, the world starts to become quite scary. They just want to know someone's got it. And then they, you know, someone goes, hey, come to my church. It's not like the other ones. The guy wears a T-shirt. It's great. And then you know, <laughs> you they, they go and they get a lot of value out of it. They may have never, I mean, to be honest, a lot of it is the same message. A lot of it's the same message wearing it. Like you'll find someone, like the same message will be in Sikhism, in Buddhism, in Hinduism, in Judaism, in Catholicism, in, you know, Taoism. The same, it's the same stuff that makes pe people well, tick. community as well. And I, so I, Precisely. I, I've spent, you know, the last, you know, 15 years really trying to find a sense of community again because the sense of community I grew up with was really quite powerful okay. in lots of really positive ways. Mm. And recreating that is almost impossible, particularly in Sydney, which is a very transactional city. It is. Yeah. But will you ever recreate that sense of community? No, probably not because it's slightly dysfunctional. Become a cyclist. <laughs> okay. Is that where it's at? Yeah. <laughs> I'm a cyclist. I have a poker game. I have a poker game that I've been a part of since 2004. Same 10 guys. All right. It's about probably 15 Not a in, the, in the whole group. No, just a bunch of guys that get around a table for a $20 game and talk shit No every charismatic Wednesday. leader. No. No tithing. Oh, there is a, a tithing, but that goes into the pot for the end of the year. Whoever wins, they take it. <laughs> That's it. And, you know, when, the, when I see the sense of community that Audrey has is the, you know, we had people come, we moved house. So we had everyone to come around to go, Hey, we moved house. I think the minimum compliment of Audrey's Fijian family is 23. Oh uh, yeah. Minimum. Yeah. And that's the close, close first blood people relative. And if you go one step beyond that, it gets to 50, 60 pretty quickly, but she's grown up like that, mm. you know, and there's nothing churchy about it. Mm. It's just, that's just family. And, I, and, and there is a part again of our human nature about what makes us who we are and why we became successful as a species where that community plays a humongous role and isolating ourselves in our phones in our four-walled rooms you know in our cubicles at work it goes against what made us people and when I see that what Audrey grew up with I'm like holy moly of course you feel so yeah and I think like if there's a way of kind of looking at when there's a tipping point where it gets to be a large community and you have these kind of organizational systems and structures that then become problematic. Mm. You know, like I don't have a problem with people being spiritual or religious. It's when the group that they're part of, you know, has a, a system that creates huge personal problems for other yeah. people. And it seems to always happen when you get to sort of a critical mass point. Well, I'm a part of a fellowship of, of, of millions of people around the world that give extraordinary benefit and change lives, but there's really kind of no money in it. The only money in it it's all volunteer. Mm. The only money in it is to because people we need to meet in a room and the room might cost 50 bucks a night. So everyone puts in a buck. Yeah. And then we've got 50 bucks. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So remove the commercial agenda. And yeah. And each particular meeting is autonomous and self-supporting. It's a, a very interesting model. Russell Brand wrote a book about it actually. Mm. It's a very interesting model, but I could see how there are other models of sobriety that 
have different financial models. It changes the dynamic. Yeah. Mate, it's a racket. Mm. It's a total racket. Yeah. If you're selling salvation and you can build an insurance company, you've got a 19-year-old kid who's smoking ice, give us 125 grand, we'll sort them out. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Oh, dude. Over in the States, man, it's a total racket. Um, so look, back to you. Where So you get to Pasadena. How old yep. were you when you landed? I was 18. Goodness me. Yeah. So everyone else going on their OE, all the other New Zealanders are going on their OE to London, I'm guessing. Yeah, probably. And if you're I going, I'm off, to, yeah. <laughs> I'm off to Pasadena, that place you heard about in a Beach Boys song. Here I go. <laughs> it's a lovely place. Pasadena's beautiful. It's mountainous. pretty cool. More mountainous than you, than you can comprehend. It's pretty cool. The only thing I would draw a parallel with current Sydney is it was full of smog and it's a basin. So yes. lots of people with yeah. chronic fatigue syndrome yeah. because of that. But the Rosebell markets are lovely. Yes. You didn't get off campus that much. That's another story. <laughs> Without being escorted, you had to be escorted by. So the isolation right in there. Yeah. So right we're in the foothills in of Hollywood. Occasionally we'd kind of sneak out and have a coffee. Well, actually I didn't drink coffee then, but, you know, in a cafe, mm. a muffin. Mm. Um, and you'd hear filmmakers talking about their scripts and that sort of thing, mm. which for me was, you know, really exciting. Mm. But we never really got to immerse in that. Well, we were told it's too dangerous. It's too dangerous to walk off campus All right. by yourself. It's like there's another great example of this. There's a fabulous Australian film called Bad Boy Bubba. You ever seen it? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Same, same. Like you can't go outside and every time the mum leaves, she puts a gas mask on. <laughs> she takes it off as soon as she goes out the door. But yeah. she basically raises a child to his mid-40s and the kid's never left the house yeah. because he believes, he's completely convinced that he will die if he goes out the front yes. door. Because that's all he's been ever told. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Or being there was a classic. Yes, just, yeah. precisely. Mm. Yeah, Peter Sellers, uh, Chauncey. Mm. <sighs> Love that a, story. Such a good film. Yeah. Terrifying, but such a, yes. such a good film. So you're in Pasadena. I'm guessing you're 18. You know, the hormones are raging. You're around all other people that, you know, suddenly you're all young and beautiful together. Was it, oh, my God, I'm punishing myself for the thoughts I'm having about that particular person? Was it like a lot of that kind of thing? Oh, that's such a loud conversation. So I managed to fall in love with someone who was probably gay, I think, and was a bit of a rebel. And we sort of had this whole drama within a drama kind of thing happening. Mm. Apparently there was lots of sex going on in the prayer closets at that. Prayer <laughs> closets? We had prayer closets, yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm guessing uh, along the lines of like, I don't know, say a large franchise like a fast food franchise, I won't name any, but when you get those big, when you buy one, there's a ring binder that comes with how it goes. So I'm guessing there were ring binders. I'm guessing there was, this is the way to run the church back in New Zealand. So being at HQ, there would have been, right, we need five prayer closets, need to be these dimensions, they need to be here and there. Probably, actually, yeah. yeah. And I didn't think about that, but yeah, there were there was a lot of access to prayer closets. The only personal space you could get was basically a prayer closet. So yeah, I think I was terrified of, falling in love with and marrying an American because that's what happened. Like basically you went there to find your husband or wife. Within the church. Then become a minister. Got it. Then go back to or be sent around the world to mm. some congregation. Uganda. Yeah. There was a lot going on and I was also terrified of, and I didn't really like the American culture. I found it a little superficial. Coming from New Zealand, we're a slightly more British side. Mm. So I tended to migrate towards the international. So, yeah, I think... I didn't break the rules. I was an all or nothing person. Right. So I'm either kind of in the system or I'm not. And I decided to kind of commit to that to so that system you, at that time. So you were studying to be a minister? I wasn't, but I sort of expected that 
I studied theology. You had to study theology. Also, I studied journalism, and uh-huh. it was you know it's an accredited college, thankfully. Amazing. Yeah, which is uh, is a miracle. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's a great tax break in that. Yeah, we actually we actually had sex classes as part of the curriculum as well. And how did that go down? Oh, uh, I actually I I was ill on those days because I did not want to be told clinically, you know, how there was a way to have sex. The founder of this religion had written a book called The Missing Dimension and Sex, which I am proud to say I've never read, but he, he went into great detail about the way to have sex. Man. <laughs> it was pretty intense. Good goodness me. So you spent a couple of years there by the sounds of things, like three or four years. Yeah, I did, yeah. And how did you come back to Sydney and not New Zealand? So I went briefly back to New Zealand Felt too small, failed to find a minister and marry them. I was a failure. And so I, not really, but at that time, look, if I'd graduated, you know, maybe a few years earlier, that there would have been a sense of that, but that's sort of come out of that mm. kind of regime. So I went back to New Zealand briefly and then popped across to visit a friend in Sydney. I was on my way to the UK. I'd sort of pretty much decided that I wanted to come out of this group, but I wasn't sure how to do it. And the weird thread, like I always see it as a, you pull a thread on the jumper and the whole thing kind of comes loose and everyone's thread's different. So in the Combating Cult Mind Control book, Stephen Hassan talks about people break a leg and they go to hospital and suddenly they're out of the bubble and they get this kind of healthy input and an intervention can take place. But something has to happen to kind of change. For me, it was makeup because we were told you can't wear makeup. That was really intolerable to me. I was I grew up being told makeup is ungodly and you will perish if you wear makeup, basically. So it's on the same level as other sins. And then they changed the rule and said you can wear makeup. And so this was kind of ticking over in my brain. I'm thinking, wait a second. One moment you're saying that we will go into the lake of fire and the other moment you're saying, oh, we'll just randomly change that rule back again. So I thought, what else? is in that category. And then the girl that I came over to visit was an ex-minister's kid. She's my best friend. And we basically used to stay up until, you know, two in the morning and just talk the whole thing out. So she was my therapist, Mm. so to speak. And we figured it out. Like she had all this extra information because she'd been a minister's daughter. I'd actually worked for the cult leader when I was in in the US. Wow. Yeah. What was he like? Well, he was the second leader. So he took over from Armstrong, who started the religion, who was the ad man. And he actually, to his credit, tried to pull the church back into a little bit more normality and then lost a whole lot of members as a consequence. Uh Not hard enough. Not hard enough. Yeah. Yeah. So we sort of just unpacked a whole lot of stuff. And that combined with reading the book, I was like, you know what? And then at that time, they were starting to say things like, look, we're not saying all other religions are bad. And I thought, okay. Well, if I can choose my religion, I absolutely do not choose this group. And so I pretty much, you know, walked away and then went crazy. <laughs> I just went into my what my teenage period would have been, basically. Right. Yeah. So the, the, the Jenga Tower fell and you just, what, you just went firing on all cylinders in every direction? I thought, you know, if I can have more of life, then let's have it. All yeah. of it at once? Yeah. Was that here in Sydney? Yes, so you stayed, so you didn't end up going to the no, UK. No, I never left. I never right. left. Yeah, I love Sydney. I fell in love with Sydney. And I think the reason being it's really free-spirited. And ironically, California is very much that way as yes. well. And so I was in this very free-spirited city, yeah. but 
you know, with constraints. And then Sydney, you can be anything in Sydney. It's awesome. From an identity point of view, it's great. But I would say you can be anything and no one gives a shit, but also no one gives a shit. So, yeah. <laughs> so to pull the scaffolding of your life away so rapidly and all the things that you'd relied on to get you through difficult interactions or challenging questions about I can just pick this up and take it and not pay for it, you know, stuff like that, you know, the whole moral thing you'd been growing up on is, is now in question and how you deal with other people is now in question. How do you rebuild that? Where do you go? Yeah, I don't think I did. Like I think I spent a period being a workaholic, you know, as I was partying but also being a workaholic and I think – I call it my anesthetic, you know, like that to me, like everyone has their addiction and I've never particularly been a drinker. I just don't like alcohol and me don't mix very well. Did a bit of drugs, but nothing, you know, sensational work was my thing. And so I disappear into the work zone and I worked, I won't name the place, but, you know, I worked in a uh, environment that had a tyrannical dictator (laughs) That's a boss. Happens. Yeah, and I was very much a people pleaser, so I could read politics just instinctively. I knew how to survive. His words were always, oh, you're so nice, and he was an absolute, you know, mm. whatever. But I'd met, I could navigate through that environment quite well. So I don't think I did any figuring out until probably 10 years along and I started working actually with a group, Adult Survivors of Child Abuse, and recognizing the impact of, you know, trauma over time. And I, you know, started to sort of look at the mirror because I thought I walked out of there and I was just fine. I thought my life's begun. I'm fine. And, you know, it's not until you kind of collide with your own decisions or, you know, issues where you start going, oh, hang on a second. Maybe I wouldn't have taken that choice if I'd actually been a bit more self-aware, thought about the patterns, etc. They yeah. do good work. Aska do very, very good work. Yes. Dr. Kathy Kesselman, what a trailblazer. She has withstood the most incredible mm. challenges to her work. And coupled with Julia Gillard with the Royal Commission, I think if that hadn't happened, she'd probably still be battling, you know, with some of those conversations. Yeah. If anyone's listening to this and anything that you're saying is resonating, I would say look up those people because you don't, it's not an uncommon experience. Unfortunately, it feels like you're the only person it's happened to. It's not. And there are thankfully some very clear, very powerful, very stringent steps you can take towards recovering and trying to live a life in recovery away from the stuff that happened to you that you had no choice over and ask it are a great door opener for that. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't recommend them highly enough. Once you started to date, you're like, what do you, you know, when people, when you're having conversations with someone, you're on a date and they ask you about, you know, where'd you grow up? Do you say... I grew up in a cult or do you just go, no, New Zealand? (laughs) Yeah, I didn't say I grew up in a cult really until probably about 10 years after reading the book. Uh Um, And I I didn't really date. I just jumped into long-term relationships. Got it. Yeah. So those people knew Hmm. a lot about me and were okay with that. And I tended to make choices that felt really safe, you know, so I'd be in in a relationship with someone who, became my full world, you know, because that was my safe space. Really. Yeah. It's like, mate, we all have patterns that repeat. Yeah. I sure, I sure <laughs> did. That's for sure. Until like, you know, and, and so I always say to anybody who, uh, you know, how are you? Oh, I just broke up, you know, five years together. <laughs> I'm like, all right. Oh, it takes six yeah. months. 
write it all down, figure out what you did and has this happened before? If it has, you're the problem, not them. You've got to figure it out. No, absolutely. <laughs> and I think, I think you know, not dating is a problem. I think dating is is a great thing to do because you get to see the whole landscape yeah. uh, and you do get challenged. Yeah. Whereas I would sort of, it's a bit like a barnacle kind of finding a yeah. ocean liner that felt like it was going in the right direction and just kind of that became my thing. And then, of course, I'd also try and do lots of fixing in that. So it was never me. I was always fine. Yeah. And then I would project a lot of my own work into the other person and, mm. you know, the things that might be going on for them. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. As you rebuilt the person that Fleur is, how did that then kind of transfer into, into the work that you do now? Like you, you've just written this book all about personal branding yeah. and, and it comes from a place i'm guessing it comes from a place of if i had to rebuild everything which you have done as an adult who actually am i who yeah. am i outside of this place you know it's really interesting you say that because i think a lot of the work i've done professionally has been quite in, i've been instinctively drawn into spaces it's not been with great self-awareness so I, if you'd asked me you know 15 years ago you self-aware say enormously self-aware Whereas I look back now and I think, no, you're in a coma. But I, I was very aware of other people and their challenges. And so the book I've just written, being about personal profile and having a voice and having impact, came from years of working, helping fix everyone else's stuff, seeing people who were unrecognised and felt they didn't have impact, helping people have a voice in the world, helping people be seen and not be too scared to be seen. I should have been doing all of that for myself and I, I can tell you I was not. And so really it's only when I knew that I was going to publish the book that I went, you better get your act together and actually have some visibility yourself because cobbler's children have no shoes and all of that. But that awareness you're talking about, honestly, I don't think it's been there. A lot of my journey has been quite instinctive and it's really, you know, maybe even just the last year that I've really seen that I've had these challenges and when I was dealing with Asuka, they were a client and I thought they were doing fantastic work and I was interested in it, but I was never thinking you've been in a traumatic childhood experience. I was observing, whereas Kathy used to say to me, Claire, you might want to look at some of the stuff, you know, because she knew I grew up in a cult and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had this distance from it. Yeah. Yeah. I think the work was still being done on a less conscious level. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think therapy for that is awesome because you can't escape. You know, it is about you. You can't shine the light on other people or distract. It's about you and there's a memory of the last conversation you had and, you know, it's a, one of the purer forms of 
rebuilding. Yeah. So I think I've rebuilt myself instinctively is my answer to you. And now I'm now on a conscious, more of a conscious path mm. to doing that and living what I'm teaching other people rather than being a complete hypocrite. As someone who's uh, undergone personally quite an aggressive rebrand. Yes. Um, <laughs> a few. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a few actually. Yeah. But I think the most, the most powerful one probably about, oh, it was in 2012. So what are that, nine, eight years ago? And then trying as hard as I can to choose which bits I carry forward, which bits I leave behind, mm. which bits I try to bring on board. And that, you know, that's an everyday thing. It's still conscious and it's very hard to sometimes outlive and out outthink the automatic behavior that is in there. What would you say to people about why it's important to think about? I mean, we think about brands, we think about, I don't know, pick a famous logo, that's a brand, yeah. right? Pick a logo that you can look at for less than a tenth of a second and know exactly I can get a burger there, all right? Yep. Why is it important for people to think about their brand? Look, firstly, I think separating the concept of celebrity from personal brand because I think celebrity is for a few individuals who rise to a certain point, you know, and have specific objectives. And yes, there's an influencer movement and there's reality TV and people are made into celebrities a lot more than they used to be. But where the conversation sits for me is that every individual deep in their heart, I believe, wants to have impact, you know, in their life. And I think most people have an area of, you know, have a talent, they have an expertise, it might need some support, you might need to do some skill building. But if we you know, leave this earth not having expressed that, that's tragic for me. And so it's really about allowing people to see that they need to focus on themselves and what impact they really want to have, not because of a job title. So a lot of people get caught up in, well, I do this and this is my identity. You're at a party. What do you do? Oh, I'm a manager at, you know, Commonwealth Bank suddenly that becomes their identity. That's crazy. You know, they might change their job next year. Who are you today? Oh, I'm working for NAB and I do business development. So that's your identity. Rubbish. You know, like your identity is something that is fundamentally who you are in all of those different incarnations. We're work slaves. I think that's got to change. So it's really sort of looking at what is it that you want to have impact around and bringing that expertise forward and not being afraid to actually step out and use your voice to do that. And everyone has a different form of voice. So not everyone can write. Not everyone wants to be in photos on Instagram. Not everyone can do public speaking. There's lots of different ways to have that impact. The bottom line is being willing to allow the focus. And so many of us run from it, particularly in Australia. They think it's more worthy to stay in the shadows. What would you say to people who want to stay in the shadows? Why are you doing that? It's probably dysfunctional. You probably, maybe you you were bred to believe that you're a better person if you are humble and people get caught up in self-promotion. And I say the antidote to that is passion promotion. So you're not self-promoting. You're promoting what you care about. Who has a problem with that? You know, that's the difference. And I think that's where this influencer stuff has gone crazy, but it should never be about just promoting and putting the spotlight on a person for the sake of self-promotion. It's about what do you stand for? Where are you trying to have impact and putting the focus? Use your identity to do that. What is the mental health benefit of, of not hiding, not being afraid of the tall poppy cutter? 
Look, it's really confronting and sad, I think, when you see other people, you know, seize the glory of something that you might have thought about, you know, three years ago. Maybe it's a book you wanted to write, a conversation you wanted to have in the world, and they might be half as good at it as you believe you could be. And maybe you even wrote the book or you you had that job title, but you're not the one that's actually having license to give voice to that. And I think as much as people tell themselves all kinds of shit around how they feel when that happens, deep down, we know that we've missed an opportunity to leave our signature on the world. And I, I think every human being has a right to have impact and, you know, leave their personal signature. So mental health, do you really want to live your life as if what you do doesn't matter? That's not very healthy to me. It's sad. So then you'll spend a whole lot of your life trying to suppress that fundamental sadness that you feel. It is something though that many people grow up with and particularly as Australians. I mean, I struggled with it. When I first moved to America on the back of the highest rating TV show Australia had ever seen, people ask me, what do you do? Australian Idol. I would mumble it because I was so embarrassed to say that I had done something that was successful. Because you were worried about looking like you're bragging or self-promotion. Exactly. Yeah, and crazy, yeah. But that's what we're bred to believe. That's mm. culturally what we're less now, I, th- I feel, but it's culturally what we are as Australians. You know, we are so afraid to say, oh, no, I did this thing. Yeah. Or, you know, my kid's done this thing because then we've become the person who's like, my kid got the highest ATAR, higher than your kid. My kid's (laughs) walking and they're five months old. (laughs) You know, then we become that person. Yeah. There's a, where's the line? Yeah. The line is, why is it important? So it's not just about putting the spotlight on yourself. And I think like social media has gone through this wild evolution. We started with status updates where it's like, what are you doing? And then it was all about just telling people what you're doing. We're so much more sophisticated now. And what we need to get to is why is it important that you've just won an award or, you know, what path are you on? What what impact are you trying to have? If your child's passionate about ballet and they've won a, an award in that space, it's part of that path they're on. That's what you're spotlighting. It's not just look at me, look at me. And I think that's the antidote. So it's finding for a start something you really care about. Because if you don't really care about it, you won't stick with it long enough to have achievement in that space. And I, I do a lot of work in the startup space. I see this in startup world. It's same in film. If you don't love the idea, if you're not obsessed by it, you won't make it because it's really hard and it's going to take more than five years and you have to be super patient. So if you're on that path, you know, if you're on a path to a startup that's going to cure, not cure, but help mental health issues or whatever, you're spotlighting that. And on the way through, you're showcasing what you're doing in that space. I think that's where we need to get to and then it's an acceptable form of bragging. <laughs> so, What about people who aren't interested in a startup and are more than happy to, you know, work at NAB? You know, why is branding important to them and the influence they have just over their immediate family? Yeah, look, there's a few reasons for that. And, you know, one is, so my little sermon at the moment is, you know, most of marketing is digital, most of digital is social, most of social is personal. So people don't love the NAB Facebook page, they love the person who might be using the NAB Facebook page. So increasingly employers are asking professionals to lend their brand to that company. So that requires a bit of identity skill and you need to navigate that so they don't just take over your identity. And I'm sure you can understand why I have issues with that. But also 
increasingly people are untethered from the workforce. So, you know, we're going to have to all fend for ourselves a lot more because I don't think companies will commit to those huge employee overheads. Why would they? So you're effectively going to become like a contractor or a freelancer in many ways. I think people have portfolio careers where they might be taking revenue from a couple of different sources. All of that requires identity management. These are skills that the average person doesn't have. I'm fond of saying you go into a company, you check your identity at the door. You know, that's what's been required. That's all changing. And frankly, Gen Z and Gen Y have blown that out of the water anyway. So there's all these forces at play, which means that the average Joe it's great that you love your job and you're comfortable in that position, but you're about to get uncomfortable because things are changing dramatically and you need to be able to use your identity without having to ask permission from your employer or get the rule book from them, basically. I think a um, great example of an employer using the identity of their lower paid employees for a much higher gain I call it church because I go there every Sunday and pay my tithing, Bunnings. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and Coles use the same, exactly the same format. There's the logo. There's the good Aussie guy or gal who's here to tell you about, I really love it when our customer comes in and I can help them find their wheelbarrows because right now they're the best wheelbarrows we've got. And then boom, 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 five or six product shots. And then, you know, the same lady or man goes, yeah, yeah, gardening. It's just great. And I just like helping people with that. Boom, Bunnings. All right, that's the format of the ad. They top and tail it with the employee in the apron and then the product's in the middle. Same with Carl's. Oh, I'm just so excited about the meals for less than $10. We can help families feed themselves. You know, she doesn't give a shit, (laughs) you know. Yeah. But that's exactly what you're talking about. You know, this is someone who's getting paid a, a close to minimum wage gig. I'm assuming they got paid for the ad and I'm assuming they are authentic employees. Yeah. Yet that is exactly this trying to, we are not, this massive logo, Coles, that you see trucks riding up and down yeah. the highway. We're not the humongous billboard you see on the side of the, the shopping centre. We are that one lady who is ready to help you feed your family. Yeah, it's relatability. And yeah. I think it was probably always there to a degree, although we wear less masks in society than we used to. But we now we have the feedback. We have the analytics. We know yeah. that the stuff that gets pushed at you through a TVC yeah. actually doesn't work. Yeah. So the analytics tell us that yeah. what's driving people word of mouth, it's the customer, it's the average customer, it's the average employee. LinkedIn knows this. That's why they give all the algorithm love to employee shots and that sort of thing because people relate to other people who are like them. Yeah. I should point out that I buy all my groceries from Coles and everything from Bunnings. I love those stores amazingly. It's working. (laughs) I love it when Coles has a special on the Vitasoy light. It's great. I come around that corner if I see that, oh, they're a dollar off. I'll buy six litres of it, just boxes and boxes of soy That's interesting. Well, I had a a friend who did some research years ago that said that people fall into two categories and one is the experience people and one's the price people. And the price people will, like, it's a price-driven that's Audrey, 100%. Yeah. Audrey's like, why did you get the berries from Coles? They were 17 cents cheaper at Harris Farm yeah. 15 minutes away. I'm like, because I was standing there and I'm happy to pay 17 cents so I don't have to go drag my trolley through yeah, Harris yeah, Farm. Yeah, that's me. That's yeah. why. Yeah. Uh, we are two completely different people when it comes to that. <laughs> like, I could, For me, I, I tend to always factor when it comes to things like groceries, I tend to factor the price of what am I not doing? while I'm doing this grocery thing. And right now it's like, I'm not hanging out with the baby. I'm not there for Georgia. I'm not talking to my brothers. I'm not doing a podcast that I adore. 
I'm standing in the aisle somewhere and then I'm going to have to schlep this trolley somewhere else and then fight through a car park. Yeah. I will pay an extra three bucks on my grocery bill so I can get out of here yeah, quicker. Yeah, it's false economy. And, and I'm happy to pay that $3. <laughs> yeah. My time is worth that. And I'm fine to say that. I'm totally <laughs> fine to say that. I've no problem saying that. Yeah, but I, I get that I'm not on a fixed income. If I was on a fixed income, three bucks is the difference between paying rent and not paying rent. So you've got to be really careful about that. Yeah. But I'm very grateful to be in an economic position where yes. I can make that call. That was a bit of a rant, sorry. <laughs> uh, but it sounds to me like, and just make sure I get what you're saying, the economy is changing so rapidly that and you can't, we kind of flew over it, but I just want to put an underline under it. The time where, oh, no, I just work for this company for the next 10 years is gone. For the next 10 years, I will pay my mortgage, feed my kids, put my kids through school by doing six or seven gigs that probably aren't going to be the same gig month to month. But over the course of my week, I will work for six or seven different employers a bit at a time. So therefore, who I am and what I can do visibly is very, very important if I want to keep that money coming in. Yeah. And you need you need to control, you need to think about that identity and actually manage it because no one else is going to do that thinking for you. And that's the thing going back to the original, original point of the conversation we were having about, we just want to know that someone's taking care of it for us. Of mm. course, that used to be the employer. Yeah. You know, I used to work in an organisation where if you stepped out of line and spoke to the media or whatever, you'd fired. Yeah. Because you really did check your identity at the door. Yeah. That's gone for sure. And increasingly people are hiring based on your network. So you might not be in business development, but they want to know how well-known you are because that yeah. you become a brand asset for that company because they know they're not going to reach people by doing the push ads anymore, you know, the logo, the high-level conversation about the brand. People just don't buy that. No. I want to buy stuff that someone I trust has told me about. Yeah. And, and increasingly we want relatability, which has a little bit of vulnerability in it. You know, we're so much more tolerant of vulnerability now. Mm. And so people genuinely, you know, authentically sharing their their story. I think we've got radar. I know people go on about how Instagram and influencers are so fake, but I think we're developing quite good radar for bullshit. I'm 100% agree with you. And if there's one thing I've learned doing this podcast is that if I'm anything less than authentic, it never works. Mm. Never, never works. And I think people are more and more able to identify that is inauthentic, what this person's doing, and therefore I don't buy it. There's a face tune on that. She doesn't look like that. He yeah. doesn't look like that. Yeah. How many thousands of shots did they take before they got that one? No, nah, that's not real. Versus here's 20 uncut minutes of me cooking pasta on YouTube. <laughs> you know, Or TikTok. Or no. whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, gee, loves a TikTok. Loves it. She's been on it since it was musically. She's old school. Do people who have been in cults, do they reach out to you because you've written this book? Yeah. Well, I haven't actually officially launched the book. I've just kind of put it out there and I'm doing a launch next month. Mm. But people reach out because I wrote a Medium blog post. I I read it. It's a fantastic one. And so I just put that on my little Facebook, which is like I have about 300 people on Facebook, and it went viral Mm. and I had – you know, literary agents and ex-cult, like so many ex-cult people still, they Mm. still, I had a woman recently contact me saying, I'm trying to get custody of my kids. My partner (sighs) is caught up in this, you know, splinter group of the religion. Can you please write me, you know, something to help with (sighs) the court case, that kind of thing. Oh, sweet God. Yeah. So absolutely. That's where the resonance was really. Like I think medium were quite amazed and they were sort of trying to do more with that piece because it, just got mm. a lot of traction 
And then I realized when I looked at it, at the analytics, a lot of it was coming from people who were part of that group. You know, yeah. the generation I was part of or younger, yeah. a lot of them were, they'd shared it like crazy. Mm. Yeah. Is there a, a group for, there's a group for people like me who don't drink anymore and we get together and talk about <laughs> it. Is there a group for people that were in cults? Uh, I think every cult's really different. So I, there probably is, I'm not part of one. There's a few online things that were sort of ex my church, bitter and twisted kind of conversations. I'm really not interested in hanging mm. out because I spent way too much of mm. my life in that community. And yeah. even though the, they might be the nicest people in the world that reach out to me, they're like, oh, we should hang out or can we get together? Can we talk? And I just, I'm not really interested. Yeah. What I do find fascinating about your story is that, and I spoke to Joe about this and it, it, it really, it's, we're very simple creatures, humans. Unless it's something that we want to do, it will never stick. Unless we want to lose weight, it will never stick. If mm. we have to lose weight for a wedding, six months after we get married, I'm not fitting in that suit ever again, you know, because it's not something I wanted to do. I did it because I was knew I kind of should, but it wasn't I wanted to do it. Mm. All right. I, I got told thousands of times I, I should not drink as much as I was, but until I personally in my heart saw, oh, until I made the call, mm. it never stuck. Never. I tried to stop haze, but until I'd made the call, it never stuck. Similarly, do you feel that if you were in it, say just before you went to America, if someone showed up in a van, grabbed you and pulled you out and go, you're in a cult, we're here to get you out, would it have stuck? Look, I actually think that I wasn't that enamoured with the group or its belief system. I mean, just as a side point, one of the crazy kind of things I have these days is that I can listen to an extraordinary amount of bullshit and find threads of gold in it because mm. I was just sit listening to these sermons from yeah. – lunatics basically for yeah. years and so but I think underneath all of that I kind of knew it wasn't right it was family loyalty yeah. and feeling like I was going to lose my group that yeah. was the thing so the man in the van it wouldn't be that he'd have to do a massive amount of arm twisting to say look this is probably not the group for you I'd go yeah I kind of know that but my family's in there yeah. and my friends are in there yeah. and I can't leave them yeah so that would have been the pull whereas for other people I think they're under the spell in a different kind mm. of way. And all right. The, uh, they told me you'd say that. They told me you'd tell me this was all fake. So it, therefore it, you are Exactly. Now and that's yeah, yeah. exactly what we see with climate um, mm. change denial. It doesn't matter how many finding expert articles and whatever. I mean, 98% of the world's scientists, I mean, if that's not going to convince you, then what? Yeah. It's in that, isn't that interesting? Like, but once we reach a certain point, we're cooked. We're done. And nothing anyone ever tells us will change our minds. And everyone that ever says anything is, it's heresy. And you are clearly, we can no longer perceive, I don't know, something our ego jumps in and prevents us from ever questioning ourselves. There is a thread, I think. So everyone has one, right? So, you know, you would know this from therapy and all of that. You know, what's the payoff for um, yeah. continuing to believe something yeah. or continuing to do something that's bad for you? So finding that that thing that's the opposite of that. Like for me, it was a silly little thing like makeup. It's like I really want to wear makeup. Yeah. So if the man in the van had said, did you know that you can wear makeup and it's okay and I'm going to show you, I'd be like very attentive, you know, so that's my thing. So I think like if anyone's got someone who's in a crazy group, Firstly, read that book. But secondly, like have a think about 
there's an Achilles heel thing for every person. What is that weak spot, that yeah. that, that opening through which you can yeah. sort of start to enter the conversation? From what I was speaking with, with Joe about, any kind of deprogramming is almost impossible to get it right with the person's really quite far gone in some of these other cults. Yeah, look, I'm not an expert, but I've spent time around hundreds of programmed people. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think the difference for me is that I was forced into that group. Uh-huh. Yeah. If I'd gone into it willingly, different kettle of fish. your identity is now part of that. Oh, I'm part of this thing. It's great. Everyone's great. There's barbecues. It's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. You've committed to it, like yeah, yeah, a political yeah. party or whatever. Or veganism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So you, have to, you spend time justifying the investment of time yes. that you've made. It yeah. now becomes your identity and any attack on that is also an attack on Yeah. It was on your for identity. me, it was great relief to go, oh my God, I don't have to be part of this crazy. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm glad you're out. I likewise. <laughs> <laughs> This has been the best. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. I'm Lots stoked. of fun. Thank you so very much for listening to that conversation with Fleur Brown. You can find her on Twitter at Fleur Brown, F-L-E-U-R-B-R-O-N-B-R-O-W-N. Ginsburg, learn how to spell brown. You know how to spell the word brown. It's in one of the books you're reading to your son. Brown. Thank you very much to everybody that helped me make the show today. Thank you, Andy Marr, my audio producer, Rachel Barrett, my show producer, the kind and delightful and fabulous human beings at the Batuta Advocate who allow me to use their studio to record this episode. And, um, of course, Mike Mills from Toe Hider, uh, who made all the music that you hear on my shows. You're the best. If you need me, send us your email at gmail.com. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thanks for listening. On Friday, I'll talk to you all about the motorbike ride I made today. Made? Did. Hmm. I don't know words proper. Lucky I work in telly. Thanks heaps. If you need me, send me an email. Look after yourself. Even if your dog's barky like mine, try and pat him because it makes you feel better in yourself. Do something for somebody else. It'd make you feel really good. You have no idea. It's amazing, right? Thanks heaps for listening and especially thanks to the people that came up to me at the motorbike ride today and said they listened to the show. You absolutely made my day, so... Thank you so, so, so much. It's just the best that I get to meet people from all over the world, from all walks of life, who do all the kinds of different things, and they all listen to this show. It's pretty, pretty epic. All right. I'm going to go upstairs and uh, hang out with my wife. Until we speak on Friday, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.